Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa So this evening I would like to talk about the five hindrances Maybe it's familiar to you, <laughs> since you came, <laughs> or in your day life. So, the five hindrances are, sense desires in Pali is uh, Kamachanda, and then the second one is Irwil, Vyapada, and then Sloth and torpor, tinamida, restlessness and worry, udacha kukucha, and then doubt, wichkicha. Uh, traditionally, they are given in, in that order, but they don't come that way, as you must have experienced. They can appear to you in any order. It can even start with doubt. Why am I here? What am I doing? All this kind of thing. So I'm going to give uh, methods how to deal with them in a very skillful way. Uh, some of us uh, know how to do it, but uh, again, it, it bears repeating, actually. So I'll start with the Kamachanda. The word Chanda there, it's a Pali word which has a function, will or wish to act or to do. So when you combine that word with karma, which is a sense, uh, we have karma wachara like sense fear, but here karma means sense. So when you put together karma chanda, that means literally willingness to have sense pleasures. You are willing to do that. In our monastic tradition, uh, we have what we call sangha transactions. We have activities to do. And uh, when you are not willing to attend, um, some monks will come and ask you, please, can you give your chanda? Can you um, approve, in other words, that you are not going to attend a meeting? So they seek for approval. And then say, okay, I've given you my chanda, so I approve. All right? So now, this is very interesting. This is exactly what we do. When we have uh, uh, these senses, we approve uh, the sense world to be uh, to take in charge of our life, so to lead us wherever it wants. These uh, uh, desires to help you figure out how you approve your senses to take charge of your life. We can go uh, through the our sense experiences, sounds, sights. Maybe as you're walking, you see your fellow yogi walking slowly and you just like it. So I wish I can walk like that person. Uh, so for me, whenever I go for retreats uh, as a yogi, and before I became a monk, I used to go to many retreats. And uh, it was amazing, always, uh, I had this temptation to look at other people, other yogis. 
And one time I made a determination, okay, I'm not going to look. Because I'm not going to say person who's having ten nose, uh, eight eyes, it's going to be the same person. I say, why bother actually? It's going to be the same person anyway. So I try to make a determination that way. Sounds, smell, taste during the, uh, this retreat, uh, maybe the food is great. So maybe you can have a, a strong sense of uh, taste. And uh, I experienced this when I attended the three-month retreat in 1999. Um, they had uh, all sorts of tea. I don't know whether you have the same now. And after walking, medita- I mean, in sitting meditation, I just went to have a cup of tea. And I was cutting most of my walking period. And uh, guess what? A lot of pain. Because <laughs> I wasn't balancing the energy. So I was, I was going through a lot of pain until I told the teacher what I do. And then he told me to balance, of course, walking and sitting. But I, spent, I found out I spent most of my time taking tea during walking periods. <laughs> so you may not want to do the same thing. So, but really, I think human beings were very visual. I would like you to go through your day and find out how many times you look at the notes board. <laughs> Just check with yourself how many times you look at your interviews, and when you are going to have interviews with teacher, up to this moment, even you, you may even not where uh, you want to note where you are going to have interviews. You look, and then whether the schedule is going to change or not. All this actually is, is desire for stimulation. This is a lot of uh, desire to see going on. Recently, I was in Washington D.C. and. Uh, there's a monk who had the birthday in uh, 65 years, and uh, he celebrated his birthday. And he asked me to give a talk. And I saw many cards, birthday cards were given to him. One of them was very impressive, actually. It was reading like this. What to give Venerable Dhamma City? Give or get. Then it continued. The one thing Buddhist monastic crave for. That was all written at the cover. And then inside, the answer was absolutely no, absolute nothing. <laughs> and it was a cartoon of a monk opening the gifts, and it was an empty box. <laughs> Most of the time, we might be actually in that area or so. So this is actually very interesting. Um, Here also there's another piece to this, that uh, there's also some desire to practice meditation, desire to attain concentration, desire to come on a retreat. That kind of desire uh, is kind of called Dhamma Chanda, desire to practice the Dhamma. This is uh, my teacher, uh, what he calls desire to be desireless as opposed to desire to be desireful. The other one, of what we call kamachanda, is desire to be desireful. In other words, have more desires. That leads to uh, tension and stress. And we know for ourselves uh, how always we have that stress when we desire for stability 
and uh, the sense uh, objects are changing all the time, so there's always a crash, conflict between the two. So, but this kind of desire to attain even final liberation, it's also another desire we call Dhammachanda, but also that desire we need to get rid of it in order to experience full enlightenment. So whether it's desire for Kamachanda, what's called Kamachanda or Dhammachanda, we have to get rid of everything before we attain enlightenment. But it's very, very important to have Dhammachanda, the desire to come and sit here, so that you can use it as a basis and support to practice. Otherwise, you will not lift a finger. You will just come here, or you don't even come here. <laughs> There's no that wish to do, right? So you should distinguish between the two, desire that leads to suffering and desire that leads to liberation. But in time of practice, you have to let go of all desires in, attain, in order to attain enlightenment. Here's a few methods to overcome desire. In general, we can distinguish between the two methods, the vipassana approach and then non-vipassana approach. In general, but uh, priority is given to vipassana approach. Whether we are going to use vipassana approach or non-vipassana approach, all the time we have to apply mindfulness. Without mindfulness, it's very difficult to overcome any hindrance. So, the first one, which is given in Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on four foundational mindfulness, is mindfulness of the hindrance itself. Mindfulness of desire when it arises, be mindful of desire. You may make a mental note, desire, desire, soft mental note, to allow, let's say, to percent uh, less of that energetic, mindful note to connect with your experience. So you allow 98% to be, this is just a, an, a, a suggestion, like 98% uh, to be a direct experience of the, present of, uh, the presence of desire and 2% to be just a sim soft mental note, desire desire, so that you land to that experience. Desire, desire. Then you also be mindful of the absence of desire, maybe letting go. You are able to let go. Generosity also is absence of desire. So this is a receptive recognition of uh, the hindrance. Because most of the time when hindrance arise, we always on autopilot. We don't even get time to really see the desire itself as a mental state. We just go for the sense objects. So this is very, very important. Then we have to be mindful of the conditions that led to the rising of desire. And one of the conditions the Buddha gave is anyway's attention to the theme of attraction the theme of beauty. Whenever we see something, we go to the signs, the signs and futures of that object, and then we're hooked. And then more desire for the object, and more and more. So if we can see for ourselves the condition that led to the arising of 
desire, sense desire, then we can understand it, how it get to us in the first place. Furthermore, we have to uh, also be mindful of the conditions that led to the removal. If it's removed, let's say, if sense desire is, is, is gone, we have to uh, understand the conditions for its removal, like uh, was reflection, was attention to uh, the attractive aspects of the object. Some, uh, sometime we can pay attention to um, the unattractive aspect of the object. So you can uh, reflect along those lines. And uh, another approach is also knowing the conditions for non-arising of the, uh, the, the sense desire in the future. Of course, this requires also to have some knowledge about uh, when the hindrance will never arise in the future. is when you attain fourth level of enlightenment, you overcome all kinds of desire. Of course, uh, in the third level of enlightenment, you overcome greed, but even in the fourth level, there's a level of enlightenment, there's some kind of craving for uh, fine material existence and fine immaterial existence, those uh, exalted states of existence. So there's some kind of craving. So if we know that, then when we're practicing, we don't take it personally. We know that there's still there's still a lot of work to do. So we try to be as more mindful as possible uh, without really uh, breaking our neck, <laughs> so to say. We really take it uh, easy and you know, uh, relaxed, but actually we apply more mindfulness. We know that we are chipping it off slowly by slowly. So this is a very, very effective actually uh, to practice this way. There's another method which is also in the, the four foundation of mindfulness is really uh, investigating the impermanence nature of the sense desires. Is it, uh, is it rising? Is it passing away? So we have to know for ourselves uh, during meditation. And this kind of rising and passing away is very important because once we see that the hindrance has passed away, in this case, sense desires, then we can compare the two states of minds when the, it was, it's present and when it was uh, it's absent, then we say, oh, this is freedom, it's more free. Next time when, since desire arises, you say, no, no, I'm going to use the same approach and investigate in terms of impermanence, whether it's rising and passing away. And also it's unsatisfactory nature, the unsatisfactory nature of sense desire. Let's say you desire for an ice cream. Or you desire to listen something. <laughs> so then you say, oh, this is a, uh, unsatisfactory. It's taking, away from li taking me away from listening to a Dhamma talk. <laughs> you miss the boat, <laughs> so to say. So also you can also uh, 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 contemplate along those lines. Right, it's unsatisfactory. This sense desire, this is ice cream. Uh, you remember when you eat ice cream and you are full of ice cream? Well, how did you feel? <laughs> right? So if you, you sell ice cream, then you reflect how you felt that time when you are 
really uh, full. Uh, you don't need any more ice cream, so you know it's not leading anywhere anyway. So, to blind ends. <laughs> so, the thing that we always we expect something to be better, better. Yeah, we always ex leaning forward to really having another experience, another experience. But once you go through this, it's the same thing. It's the same thing again and again. It doesn't matter how many ice creams you have in life, you just end up screaming if it's too much. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, you go to the also the contemplation of the uh, anatta, which is selfless nature of that experience. It's impersonal experience. You also contemplate that uh, desire arises due to causes and conditions. And it's these causes and conditions that brings this desire. So you have to remember that it's impersonal process. Now, if desire is overwhelming, that is the third technique, it's more, it's called redirection. You direct your mind to the body. Right? You direct your mind to the body or to the breath because the breath do you have a lot of desire to breathe? Do, to breathe? No, it's, the breath is not uh, like uh, provoke a lot of desire. Right? It's a more neutral object. So you come to the breath and be mindful of the breath. So that kind of gives you a break, actually, from this tormenting mind state. Uh, so you actually try to be mindful of the breath. So it's called redirection method. Then also, you can apply more investigation also. How does this desire feel in the body also? How does it feel in the mind? So you can also carry out that kind of investigation. That helps you to know how desire affects you. So that next time it, when it comes, you know its signs. Huh? You know how it feels. Now, it's very, very important to check in from time to time uh, as you are becoming mindful of, of this desire is are you practicing mindfulness in order desire to go away or not? Because there's always a leaning forward, okay, now, I want to desire to go away. So there's that kind of uh, desire to have more desire for something to go away. That's another desire if there's a desire for something to go away uh, and just wishing, um, expectation and all that. So it's very good to check the mind state actually. So, but I think the best mental state to be in when you are doing all this is really to understand. I would like to understand how desire feels in my body how it comes, how it goes. So understanding is very, very important because it's through wisdom and mindfulness I think the, this mental state can uh, slowly subside on its own. Other than having more desire to have desire for it to go away. So this is very important. The fourth technique which is very helpful, I find it very helpful, is depersonalization process, depersonalization method. So where, uh, this one is also given in Satipatthana Sutta. The discourse there says, not, cl not clinging on to anything in this world as 
I, mine, and myself. So in this world, that means the world of the five aggregates, the body-mind process. And then we depersonalize the process. Uh, okay, this desire is another mind, mind state. It's a really rising and passing away. And also this is not mine, actually. It's just a mental state. It's not I, it's not myself. There's a, a, a staff member, is not here, I think. He has written on his desk, not I am S. Not I-M-S. So he works with I-M-S, but he say, <laughs> not I-M-S. I didn't understand, actually, when I went to his office. And then when I read it, I said, this is very interesting. This is what the Buddha was saying. <laughs> so he said, desire is not I. <laughs> desire is not mine, and desire is not myself. So I think once we have already done the investigation of impermanence and all these things, we will come to... Re that, that reality that this is, desire is just rising and passing away is not mine. Now, we are going to the non-vipassana methods, but also requires more mindfulness also. Here we need to replace desire with its opposite. What's the opposite of desire? Is generosity. Is letting go. So we can also use that method. But this is also mindfulness watching which method you are going to use actually. So it's not really actually trying to suppress desire, but actually you are trying to substitute with its opposite. That also can help also because you have already got wisdom under your belt. So you can uh, as well apply more active methods really to overcome that hindrance. The sixth one is more of reflection. You reflect on how dangerous this desire is. It's not leading to concentration. In fact, hindrance, they hinder wisdom, they hinder concentration, they hinder uh, awakening. So you know that it's actually dangerous to act on desires, since desires. So as a, in a a, a hindrance, it hinders you from even attaining final liberation. It's very, very important to remember that. Finally, you have to cultivate conditions that really uh, lead to detachment or non-attachment. But I like to use the word non-attachment other than detachment. You incline your mind towards renunciation. I think somebody gave a talk yesterday. So if you incline your mind towards that all the time, I think you, you uh, actually overcome this uh, hindrance. So the second hindrance is ill will. As I told you last time, that this means that your will is ill. That's what it means, basically, literally. Uh, so this is also a very common hindrance in our meditation. I don't know if you have experienced it already, but uh, you come and sit here with all your good intention and all of a sudden you don't want to watch the breath. You, know, you, you don't like this and that. To help you figure out that things that you may not like during retreat is one is your yogi job. <laughs> Do you all like your yogi job? Maybe some. <laughs> Yeah, others maybe not. 
whether when it can when it's getting cold maybe you won't like it because some of you come from africa some of you maybe california that can trigger a lot of aversion maybe fellow yogi you're next sitting next to you the way they sit the way they eat in the dining the way they breathe the way they clear cough they clear their throat I mean, it's amazing how really these things come. And we are all good yogis. I'm not saying these things happen to everybody. But it's amazing to watch what arises in our mind state. And wh when we meditate, it seems that we, we even see more of this. What's amazing that we get to see even more of what's going on in this mind. Maybe you don't like the instructions <laughs> of meditation, even watching your breath. But I think the most repulsive object during meditation is pain. Nobody likes to experience pain. Certainly I don't. <laughs> so uh, it comes again and again, and we try to, uh, to react. All right? We try to react whenever there's pain. Again, uh, the instruction is the same. Really, it's just a, a simple variation because it will is a flip side of... Uh, of desire. Here is desire to push away things. In fact, desire is bipolar. It's a, it is desire to get and desire to push away things. Here, we desire to push away things that we don't like. It is a pain, situations, thoughts, and all these things. Again, this instruction the same. We use receptive recognition, being mindful of the anger or ill will itself. We make it the object of meditation. That's your number one approach to any hindrance. You make it the, the object of meditation. You may not note it. You will anger and see what happens. With curiosity, of, you, you want to understand you will. When it's absent, when you have this kind of loving kindness, also you become aware of that. And then the conditions that brought ill will, all these conditions, one of them is paying unwise attention to the theme of irritation. Whenever there's any irritation, you don't, uh, you, you don't, uh, uh, you are not mindful actually to see it. And you say, "I'm, I'm right to be angry." You kind of justify the situation. That's also very important because once we know the conditions, so we know next time when it's coming and also we know how to remove it. So the way uh, also to practice is to also knowing the conditions when it's removed. What are the conditions? Mindful of the condition of, of that led to the removal is actually wise attention to loving kindness, practicing loving kindness. Of course, uh, another practice that's very important is to at least have theoretical knowledge that you overcome this ill will when you attain the third level of enlightenment. Before that, you, you practice mindfulness slowly by slowly, and uh, it will like weaken every time you practice, it weakens its grip. It's very, very important to know. Again, we follow the same method of in investigating. We keep on investigating, every investigation, like the impermanence nature of ill will, the, the unsatisfactory nature, the selfless nature, that means it's impersonal. Ill will is impersonal. Most people, though, personalize it, 
they even get copyrights. Oh, they say, I'm an angry person. You tell them, forgive this and no, this is my anger. So that's what we do mostly. <laughs> we really own it. Really, we see it as a solid thing, the inside us, actually. But actually, it's really a, a mind state. You don't own it. It just comes due to cause and condition. So once we investigate that way, we gain what we call insight knowledges. And once we get insight knowledges, then we can proceed on with our methods. Investigate how does it feel in the body, how does it feel in the mind. Sometimes there's a tension in the chest. When there's anger or ill will, you feel the, the tension in the shoulders, in the jaws, tightness. You can re release that tension also. So it's very, very important, important to know that the body is a biofeedback. It tells us what's going what's going on in our mind. So pay attention to how you, it feels in the body. Again, depersonalization process, that method of depersonalization, it's not I, it's not mine, it's not myself. Then you go to uh, another method which is called replacement. You replace anger with metta. Now we are applying non-vipassana meditation, but with mindfulness we try actually to uh, substitute with its opposite and it's okay because we have already going, gained wisdom into this hindrance so we have wisdom we understand oh this is anger this is rising this is passing away so it's okay to apply more active methods so that you overcome it but not struggling not really fighting it but actually using mindfulness to substitute the opposite of anger like meta loving kindness. Compassion is also a good substitute. Gratitude, every time being gratitude, uh, grateful to what's available, what's available, all these things can help you to actually replace with its opposite. You also want to reflect about how anger is dangerous. Uh, whenever it arises, you know for yourself how you feel. You don't feel happy, you can't even sleep at night, and you cannot enjoy even the good things which are around you, like uh, good friends around you, good teachers around you, good teachings around you, everything you negated. I don't like to be here. It's because of the mental state, but once the mental state has gone, it's amazing how you see even beautiful things. Even rocks, yesterday I went to Wachusets, for a hike, I mean, getting a little bit of exercise instead of staying in one place. So I, I, met, I, I met a place, it was a rock. I said, a wonderful piece of art, really. And my friend who took me there, my copy, I said, yeah, this is a rock. <laughs> for me, I thought it's amazing, actually. <laughs> so even a rock can be amazing if you actually, you, have, you are in a space of loving kindness. Yeah, there's a monk who saw concrete and said, wow, this is a beautiful piece of art, you know. So anyway, my friend maybe, uh, I don't know what he thought, but for me, I, say, I, I didn't expect that rock in Wachusets Mountains. I had a wonderful uh, uh, space for, for that in my mind. So you have to also to cultivate conditions to create uh, this mind state to arise, like uh, always inclining your mind towards meta,
there's some other methods actually this is just brief so that at least you get a hand over over this because i know it's happening in your experience but if you remember this i think that would be wonderful it's the same actually instructions just a little bit of vi variations so we go to the third one it's called sloth and torpor here you sit here and come to meditation all right you come here and then you sit comfortable on a cushion and then one cushion you put one cushion and then you you get something for the hand and then the teacher say please sit comfortably feel at ease the temperature's good everything's good had good breakfast and the instructions are so good are so soothing the voice is so soothing and then you listen to them and you close your eyes and the teacher also tells you, please close your eyes. And gives the option also, you can open them if you want, but it's better you close them softly, half closed. <laughs> All these conditions around are favorable for this hindrance. And guess what? You've worked so hard to overcome these sense desires and aversion and ill will. Now what? Uh, the mind just... Sleep, <laughs> literally. <laughs> so, uh, again, don't take it personally, actually. So this is another mind state that arises in our life when the mind falls asleep. Again, the instructions are the same, actually. Pretty much, make it the subject of meditation. Sleepiness, sloth and torpor. When you do that, actually, it's amazing. Sometimes you are awake because you need energy to do that. The problem, we don't arouse energy <laughs> and then we cannot even note. <laughs> we cannot make even that mental note. Even such a simple instruction that note it. <laughs> <laughs> Sleepiness. People still doubt, okay, how will that go get rid of? <laughs> how is that going to get rid of hindrance? Oh, sleepiness, sleepiness. And the mind is tricky to say, you know, that's not going to work. You know, you know, it's just a wastage of time. So, in other words, sleeping in so so is not like you are really f s uh, closing your eyes and falling like this. And it's also inability to arouse mental energy, to even to not, to be mindful, or even to take on a hard task. So, uh, it's very, very important to know the subtle forms of sleeping in so so. It's loss and torpor. So, also be aware of its absence. When it's absent, it's very, very important to know. Again, investigation is very important. Is it increasing? Is it passing away? Is it staying the same? The unsatisfactory nature of, um, of the sleepiness and, and uh, also the impersonal nature of the experience. This is pretty much standard. I've already given a, a guided meditation about that, but I like to go a little bit more on uh, uh, instructions also about how to deal with it. You need to really go into the investigation, how it affects your body. Is the heaviness of the body? Is it the heaviness of the eyelid? Are you slouching? And uh, how it affects the mind sometimes you feel like fogginess is very, very important. 
But one one technique that helps me a lot when I have a lot of sleepiness is actually expanding my awareness and give the mind more objects to observe, more homework for the mind. So I just not breathing in, breathing out, touching. So there are these points of touch, the, the feet touching the ground, left feet, right feet, uh, right angle, left, uh, left ankle, right ankle, knee, and the left and right, and then also the touch points here, left buttocks, and then right. right. And then any touch point, I, when I, I really navigate these points, not very quick, but really just be mindful of each point and feel the touch sensation, touching, pressure all this warmness, all this kind of thing. So the mind gets reactivated and I, f I feel more awake. And also awareness of the body sitting itself, the tension in a body. As you're sitting, there's a, the body has some kind of tension. So you become aware of this body sitting. That helps also. Again, depersonalization method. Uh, sleepiness is not I, it's not mine, it's not myself. It's another rising mental state. It should be easy to come to that uh, stage when you have already investigated again. Uh, it's, uh, it's not dry concepts. Okay, sleepiness is not mine. It's not I. No, no, no. It's actually recognizing that it's a mind state through investigation. And you see for yourself that you are not the owner of sleepiness. So it's very, very important. Another technique uh, is actually is to stay wakeful by visualizing bright light. Open your eyes when you are uh, meditating. You can look at artificial light. That also can be very helpful. There are many methods given in the discourse. These are given discourses, uh, not in the Mahasat Patana Sutta, but uh, in, uh, it's given in Anguttara Nikaya. They recommend to open the eyes, and also they recommend to stand up. If you have sleepiness, you can also walk, take a walk. That is very helpful. Uh, moderation in eating also is very important, because when we eat a lot of food, what happens? <laughs> so blood has to go for digestion so there's less blood on the brain and then less oxygen so then we feel asleep it's natural so moderate your eating if you eat full then you're going to feel asleep <laughs> definitely so the Buddha recommended five mouthful before uh, your standard meal let's say if you eat a plate like this, you say, okay, you know, I'm going to have less five mouthful. So please don't waste them. Don't always leave five mouthful and you throw those five mouthful. But as people are serving you, you say, okay, oh, you're getting your own food. You actually stop before the five mouthful. But it's very hard, you know. <laughs> you have to really practice a lot <laughs> to get into this. <laughs> Me, I know when you people, you give me food, you see me bringing that thing. <laughs> actually, the good thing about being a monastic uh, is actually you're on a receiving end, actually. You're on a receiving end, you, you can actually uh, 
people actually give you food and then you are at their mercy. Sometimes they give you more, sometimes less. <laughs> but, but for us, we are so much used. Even when you get less, you know, oh, those are part of the five mouthful. <laughs> then you fill that with water. <laughs> I remember one time in Uganda, the first time I went there as a monk, one Ugandan told me he's going to give me lunch, but I couldn't believe it because I've been going for arms around for a long time without food, people giving me food, but one Ugandan said, he said, oh, I'll give you food. Then I said, wow, this Ugandan knows about monastic tradition. He's going to offer me food. So he came, she came and then she gave me almost like five chips, eh? potato chips and omelette, I'm telling you. This is a monk who hasn't taken breakfast, who has spent almost 18, 18 hours without food. I'm telling you, I was humbled, actually. I said, wow. <laughs> it was a humbling experience, actually. I mean, I didn't go to a Thai restaurant because it's a, it was a backup, actually, to go to a Thai restaurant uh, to, go, to go for food. But I said, okay, I'm not going. So this Ugandan is going to give me a very wonderful food, Ugandan food. And I mean, see, I don't know how she really thought. <laughs> she did not probably I don't take dinner or <laughs> breakfast. Anyway, I was humbled. But that's a meal that I appreciated a lot. That was very little. I really appreciated And I will never forget that meal. That's one thing. Five chips. <laughs> Maybe two eggs. Receiving end. Okay, constant under eating. <laughs> I didn't have sleepiness that day. Because I know constant... Under eating and frequent fasting can be helpful for this hindrance. <laughs> Remember that. <laughs> so we go to restlessness and worry. Udacha kukucha. That's a beautiful word. It shows how the mind actually keeps on bothering you. Sleepiness, yeah, it's okay. After all, you're asleep. But <laughs> I mean, what can we do? <laughs> but restlessness and worry is a nagging experience, actually. I don't know you, but I'm telling you. Like the word itself, udacha kukucha, <laughs> keeps on plowing you. <laughs> kuku, 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 kuku. It shows, <laughs> it shows the, how the man keeps on kuku, 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 kuku. <laughs> Again, the invitation. This is the invitation. Of course, the cause of uh, this hindrance is uh, uh, paying anyone's attention to uh, unquiet, un uh, in, uh, lack of tranquility. When the mind is not tranquil, the restlessness is going to arise. And worry, of course. Worry is more of omission and commission. You, you start worrying things that you you actually good things that you didn't do and bad things that you did. So you start worrying, especially when you took the five precepts and, and then you step on something and you kill it and you start worrying about this. So actually there's nothing to worry about this. You can always uh, retake the five precepts and all that and also determine not to do the same thing again. So anyway, uh, whenever restlessness arises, you just make a mental note, restlessness. 
restlessness or worry. It's also its absence uh, when it's absence, absent. So this is also very important because most of the time when we are restless, we actually uh, don't pay attention to the mind state itself. We are discouraged, actually. The same practice condition that, re are, are le that led to the rising of this mental state, restlessness, is paying anyone's attention to lack of tranquility. You, so the mind is actually being chanted from time to time. You pay attention, wise attention to tranquility, then restlessness also, it can go away when you pay to wise attention to tranquility, calmness of the mind. Also condition for non-arising in the future is when you attain the fourth level of enlightenment. Before that, take it easy. Don't take it personally. <laughs> Only when you attain the fourth, uh, the fourth level. <laughs> of course, uh, even people attain the first level of enlightenment, they have some subtle uh, restlessness and all that. So that our restlessness, we have, we have to take care of it. So we investigate. That's how we take care of it. Is it rising? Is it passing away? And how unsatisfactory it is. We know for ourselves when you have restlessness, there's a lot of dukkha there. <laughs> I don't know if you have experienced that, you know. So how you start investigating how does it affect the mind? Agitated. The mind is agitated. The body also is tensed. A lot of tension. There is a technique, it's not given in a such pattern, but I find it very helpful, is when I'm observing, it's more of redirection method actually, this redirecting, when too much restlessness is there, I redirect my mind to the breath. First to the body, and then to the breath. So instead of watching, taking time to watch, breathing in, breathing out, so I just watch only breathing in or breathing out. I just take only part of that, part of that, not both of them. And then when it's too much again, I just watch only half of the breathing in, quarter of the breathing in, and then zero. <laughs> I just stay there and I do what you call choiceless awareness. Just sit there <laughs> and watch the show. <laughs> This watching of the show is given, I think, in Tibetan tradition where actually you see the mind as a sky. You see, your mind is like a sky. And then the rest of restlessness is like clouds. So when you look at the clouds, they are not attached to the sky. They just keep on going, going, going. So the same thing, just sit there and just look what's going on. Just clouds passing through. Passing through. It's very interesting, actually. Especially when you fly and you're above the clouds. You just, clouds are just moving. They are not attached to the, the sky. But it's, what's very interesting, when we have this hindrance, we feel that these hindrances actually are just attached to our mind and they're not going. But actually they're moving, but we cannot see the movement. Because we don't have mindfulness and wisdom, we don't have enough mindfulness and wisdom to pick the flow. This is what happens when you like when you are walking and you see my, uh, what to call a waterfall. When you are at a distance, you see it as one thing, right? All one thing, solid thing. But when you come closer to the waterfall, you see actually it's one drop after another, one drop after the other, and then you can see that okay, it's not one thing falling. 
So now, with this hindrance, when we don't have mindfulness, we think it's one thing in our mind actually bothering us. But actually, when we have mindfulness and we come closer, wisdom uh, helps us, mindfulness and wisdom helps us to come closer to this hindrance. We can see actually it's not one it's energy. It's just actually restlessness. There's a moment. There's another restlessness. So there's actually uh, movement into it. It's not one thing. There's some spaces. If you allow ourselves to watch, we can see some spaces. And then this kind of uh, observation is very important for us because we can see those moments when there's no restlessness, when, when there's no worry. Depersonalization process is very important, as I told you, and also replacement. Try to practice calmness. Any practice of meditation that leads to, leads to calmness is very important, like metta loving kindness. Try to practice metta loving kindness. Reflect on the qualities of the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. That will arouse joy and all uh, other mental states like happiness. And then at least will be uh, very helpful. You can also reflect on the danger, how dangerous it is if you really keep on uh, entertaining this restlessness and don't apply yourself to uh, the object of meditation or play with all these different techniques. You are going to suffer more of this hindrance. Finally, this doubt. Doubt. Actually, I had a little bit of doubt whether I'm going to complete this talk myself. <laughs> so that's also another hindrance. I mean, I'm not sure because time is always passing very fast when I give a hindrance talk. So, <laughs> okay, doubt, uncertainty. We are not certain. It's called witch kitchen. We are not certain. Should I practice? Should I practice mindfulness of breathing? Or should I watch the rise and the fall of abdomen? Or should I? go to this teacher, should I go to this teacher? So we really doubt, which is the best teacher actually? Maybe Joseph, maybe Bante. We are not even sure <laughs> who is the best teacher. So, uh, and it really doesn't matter actually. <laughs> so, uh, really just be with doubt, really. Just doubt. Just stay with doubt. Nothing doubt, doubt, doubt. Whenever doubt arises, just doubt. You just note it as doubt. It's absence when it's not there. When it's not there, that means you have faith. Carol gave a very beautiful talk about faith. This is the opposite of doubt. So I'm not spending much time on this because I know yes, uh, before Carol gave a talk on, on faith, which is the opposite of doubt. So if you want to really overcome doubt, remember that talk. <laughs> All of it. <laughs> All right, so, but if I have to talk anything about doubt, remember that doubt is actually uh, is caused by lack of discernment between what is skillful and unskillful. Uh, kusala in Pali, kusala and akusala. So uh, skillful, skillful states of mind are those states that lead to one ha one's happiness, the happiness of others and both. Unskillful, they are the states of mind that leads to suffering of oneself, others, and both. So we can distinguish that way also. So in other words, wholesome states of mind are motivated by generosity, loving kindness, and understanding. And unskillful states of mind are motivated by 
uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. So we have to make such a distinction, distinction, psychological distinction between what is skillful and unskillful. So when we, we have doubt, we don't know whether this is skillful or unskillful. Should I watch the breath here? Should I watch the breath rise on the fourth abdomen? Should I practice metta at this moment? Should I do this? So we are not sure. And the good thing about this, uh, this uh, retreat is that you have interviews. So that's how you can sort out your doubt. You go to the teacher and ask the questions. Then we can overcome doubt. Of course, before you go even to the teacher, you can deal with doubt through reinvestigation. How does it ar arise? Um, we, we know the causes and conditions for doubt to, ar to arise. It's uh, not discerning between skillful and unskillful. So we can, w once we know the causes, then we try to eliminate, eliminate the causes by actually wise attention, paying wise attention to, and you, you discern between what is skillful and unskillful state of mind. You cultivate what's skillful, what's wholesome, and let go what's unwholesome and unskillful. You investigate so that you gain, you gain insight knowledges. You investigate the impermanence nature of the doubt, the unsatisfactory nature of doubt, the, the non-self nature, the impermanence nature of doubt. You can do all these things. Because doubt is not localized in the body, it's very difficult actually to see. So uh, the key is always to come back to the breath. Any object that is present is very important. Doubt can arise when you are lost in the past and the future. We are, in other words, removed to, from the present, present experience. So in fact, when you come to the body or the breath, where is doubt when you are with the body? I'd like you to come to the body now. Come to your breath. Where is doubt? And meditation is all about knowing, okay, you are breathing, and you know that you are breathing. Then, where is doubt? <laughs> What's brain surgery there? <laughs> Just know that the doubt is there, doubt is arising, arising and know that it's doubt. So there's no further doubt there. <laughs> it's quite enough to really come to the simple object, to the body, to doubt itself. Replacement, you replace with faith, that's very helpful. And that's the opposite of doubt, that's the replacement method. You replace always with it with the opposite of the hin that hindrance. Reflect on qualities of the Buddha. Whenever you reflect on the quality of the Buddha, you gain gladness, joy, tranquility, then uh, happiness and concentration and wisdom to understand things as they really are or, uh, or understand things as they become. Yatabhuta nyanadasana, the Pali word. So when you understand things as they really are or as they really become, then you can see for yourself, there's no doubt. So this is very, very important. So my friend, is this is uh, some of the techniques uh, that you, you need to use. There are many more, but I think this is uh, what you need. I wanted to unify them so that at least you know it's the same techniques, but variation, different variation. Now the question, what, is to, what do we get in all this? At the end, okay, we have overcome the hindrance. Then what? <laughs> is that all? <laughs> What's very interesting is actually when we practice like this and overcome the hindrances and then there's no hindrance. It's amazing. The degree of freedom that we experience. Really you feel, ah, 
Finally, I've got it. <laughs> so you have faith. That's the first uh, state of mind that, oh, this practice works. I should meditate more. I should come for three months retreat more. So you gain faith. I should practice more. So there's faith there. There's energy. There's mindfulness. You gain more mindfulness. There's concentration. There's wisdom. All those are positive states of mind that you gain when there's no hindrance. Even more than that, when you practice and then you manage, even temporarily, you, to overcome hindrance, there is a correspondence arising of joy. Uh, first with Pamoja, which is gladness, you feel joy, and then, oh, this works. And then when there's gladness, according to Buddha, he said that joy arises, pity, pity. And then joy arising, then you have tranquility, calmness of the mind. The mind is calm. And then when the mind is calm, then you feel happiness, sukha. And then when you have happiness, uh, then you feel concentration. And the mind gets really concentrated, really, really concentrated. And now hindrances have no chance when the mind is concentrated. So uh, this is very important to know this relationship between happiness and concentration. Most people think that they are going to practice meditation and gain concentration and then be happy. But it doesn't work that way, actually. First, you need to create happiness. <laughs> I don't know how you're going to do it, either through loving kindness, <laughs> may I be happy, may I be peaceful, or you're going to suppress the hindrance and then be happy. If you want to gain concentration, be happy. That's a precursor. Happiness is a precursor for concentration. And if you want to gain wisdom, seeing things as they become old as they really are, you need concentration. So when you gain concentration, I'm g we are going, still going. When you gain concentration, you see things as they really are, they how, how they really become. When you see things as they really become, then you gain what you call disenchantment, nibbida. So this is not a negative term, but it's really uh, turning away from this, uh, this sense experience, craving, and all these things. Then with that kind of state of mind, you gain another state of mind, which is called uh, viraga in Pali. Raga means glow, glow, like glowing. And then viraga, not growing. So we are no longer glowing uh, to even things like hindrances. So we actually, the, the English word dispassion is uh, not a negative word actually, though it sounds like negative, but actually it's a, a positive state of actually not clinging on, not holding on to things. And from that state of mind, which is called uh, not gluing, literal, I'm translating it virag like that, you gain liberation. So may you all be liberated. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> at least in this sitting or in this retreat, by using hindrance as a basis and support for overcoming all the suffering. Thank you very much for listening. Let us sit for a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.